What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. And how are you this week? I'm doing all right. We have a quick correction from last week. We talked about Kutnaora, the city of silver, and we commented that we found the market a little opaque. Uh, I will stand by that judgment, but I did go further and comment that the rulebook did not provide us guidance. This is false. The rulebook does indeed talk about the general trends that you might expect, and whether that Armed with that knowledge, I will feel that it is sufficiently transparent. We'll see. It is definitely not as transparent as some of the other market-based games. Again, I, I would point to Navigador, even games that I don't like, such as Power Grid, where you can actually see the numerical consequence of each act. But we will probably be revisiting Kutnora before too long anyway, and I just wanted to correct the record. We apologize for the error. So, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game. What's our feature game this week, Walker? Mark, it's in the title. Didn't you read it? It says Federation. We don't have a title yet. It hasn't been published. See, the listeners are listening to it now. Oh. But right now we're recording it, and so it's... it's, Right now it's now. See, what we're in is kind of a time machine. And later will be later. Later will be now. Now will be later. Is what I'm saying. That's confusing. Yes. So what did you play last week, Walker? Mark, we played a game called Beast because our listeners said that it was a game that we missed from 2023. Don't blame the listeners. It is a fact that we missed it from 2023. This is designed by Elon Midhall, Aaron Midhall, and Asnar Peterson. It is published by Studio Midhall, and it was a Kickstarter, and it is a hidden movement type game that's not Sniper Elite. (laughs) It's true. It's a hidden movement game that is not Sniper Elite. I wish we had played Sniper Elite. So I read the majority of the rule book, and I I sort of felt how it was going to go. Uh It seemed fiddly. It was just sort of the beast. You you can track your movement on the map if you want to, it says, but you don't have to. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. And then it doesn't give you tokens to sort of... There's a little mini map on which the beast can theoretically... Track their movement if they're inclined, which is an absurd concession because I don't see how the beast would track it otherwise. The hidden, the, the, it's a one v all mechanism, and the hidden player, the beast, has has movement cards that are not moved to specific city or specific location on the map, but rather north, east, south, and west. And this chain can get you know half a dozen cards easy. And the very notion 
The idea that anyone could track this in their head without recourse to the minimap is strange, but that's a minor quibble. Yeah, not only not only track where they are, but as the each, hunters each move around, been, yes. they have to know, yeah, if they've been there or not. So they're constantly looking at cards or so because there's no tokens. And and that's to say that every game that's preceded it has had mechanisms and tokens and ways to track all of this information. Yes. Scotland Yard was more transparent for the Mr. X player in terms of tracking where they had been. Absolutely. So in Beast Mark, you move. You move this way, you move <laughs> that way. You track across the land, then you move some more. Mm-hmm. And then you play some cards. Cards are really cool. They do really cool things. But I'm going to play Like them. what? Move. Oh. Because i got to discard it to move. Because i got to move. Uh, apparently you like to move it, move it. Apparently. Yes, I have a personal bias as well as a substantive objection to games where the majority of the time you're just getting from point A to point B, unless it's done in an interesting way. Counterpoint. Some race games manage to make getting from point A to point B interesting. You know, whether it's the the mush-mush system, the various Snowtails iterations there, that's kind of interesting. Or games like the Quest for Eldorado, which is another race game. Movement there is interesting. There's this symbol matching element where it's puzzly. Uh, two movement games that spring to mind where you're just spending your entire time getting from point A to point B that I very much did not enjoy are Shadows Over Camelot, because I just don't feel like you do enough on your turn. When you spend your entire turn just moving to a new location, that is not necessarily what we call ideal, at least for my personal preference in terms of play experience. And another example is Nemesis, where you spend the majority of time just trying to find the thing you're, you're, you're trying to find, and then you move the thing. It's like, oh, that's a block tear. That's, uh-huh. Similarly, Beast, you spend most of your time just moving around. I was a character whose special ability was having the ability to move basically the objectives around. The Beast's objectives were to go and murder some humans, and I could move those humans around. And it was a very tiresome experience for both myself and the Beast. We would spend the majority of our turn just trying to get to where we needed to be, and there wasn't really any tension about, oh, where's the beast or where am I going to go? Or oh, it's like, oh, I've got to haul myself to the other side of the map. And then the beast would do this very laboriously. It's like, ha And then I'd be like, eh, I'll just move the person away. Yay! It does have an interesting system. So I wish it was tied to something fun. <laughs> so it, like, sort of like an Inish system where it has this single deck of action cards and all of the hunters and even the beast all draft from the same deck. So you get to know the actions. You start hate drafting cards so the beast can't do things. That part of the game was interesting. Unfortunately, it was coupled to the rest of the chaff. I would have been happier if it had leaned harder into that notion because I felt it was diluted a little bit by virtue of the Beast's unique action cards, the ability of the Beast to cycle those unique action cards, and a variety of other one-shots that both the Beast and the Hunters had access to. And so consequently, it it felt like that aspect of having a vague idea about what the Beast could do, eh, it got overwhelmed by a variety of other special effects. I would have been... You're right, that, that element was neat. The drafting was a little bit of tension. And then the actual gameplay starts and you're just going from point A to point B, largely speaking. It's also the case that as hunters, this feeling was exacerbated. It's a 1v all game and the one just gets to do more. Now, what they do is not necessarily more interesting, but they get to spawn things that covers more of the map. And it really does feel like if you're playing a four player game, then the one player gets to do all the things of three players. And then the other individual three players do a third of that. That's not ideal. There's a whole bunch of stuff 
that rubs me the wrong way from a personal level as far as Beast is concerned. I'll just lay that right on the table again, that movement is the primary focus without an interesting movement system, that it's a 1v-all system. I'm not a huge fan of either of those things structurally. But in terms of the actual gameplay experience, it was just incredibly dull and tedious for everyone and frustrating, and you never felt like you could do anything of substance. Agreed on all points. That was Beast by Studio Midhall. On the topic of a game where getting from point A to point B can actually be interesting, I played Iberia, which was previously stylized as Pandemic Iberia. This is one of the historical sort of offshoots of Pandemic. Between the two of us, I'm by far the bigger Pandemic fan, and this variant was designed by Jesus Torres Castro and Matt Leacock, published in 2016. It is my second favorite of the Pandemic variants, the first, my favorite being Fall of Rome. And yes, I prefer these historical versions to Pandemic Legacy for what it is worth. Rest in peace, Coop. And the thing about one of the great things about Iberia, one of the variants that it introduces, is you have this pressure to build up the railway network. You don't get to fly. It turns out I, I did some research. I don't. I, I don't want to have to do another erratum. And I only took a few history courses in university. But I, I think what might have been happening in mid nineteenth century Spain is they didn't have many commercial airlines, minus the UFOs, right? We're not counting the UFO part. No, no, the Just, UFOs I think are another module under the Iberia gotcha, version. Gotcha. And ultimately, therefore, you have to build up a railway network. Now, what does this have to do with public health officials in the mid-19th century dealing with cholera and malaria and so forth? And eh, not a whole heck of a lot, but who cares? And I really appreciate the fact that they took out one movement consideration but added in another. And another difference between Pandemic, all the versions, and other games where you're just getting from point A to point B, you have four actions on your turn. And generally speaking, on most turns, some of that will be for movement, but the rest of it will be for, for, for other stuff. And so there's this tension between how to use your movement efficiently on the one hand with the resources you have available and how many actions you want to spend on movement on the other. Is that the one that has that... Not weird, but interesting, I guess you could say, triangulation sort of thing where tokens get placed in the center of the thing. Yes, yes. where you oh, purify right. water and that tri hits a region that is between three to five other cities and that can prevent cubes being added from those areas. And in point of fact, in the game we played, one of the characters was the nurse and every time the nurse moves, they get to add a blocker token to a region adjacent to where they are, preventing cube addition as well. And I I'm a big, big fan of Pandemic Iberia. And another thing that I just want to emphasize, it seems like a minor thing, but it really contributes. A lot of time, effort, and money goes into designing player components and, and board game components. But I think an underappreciated aspect is card design backs. So take, for example, a, game, a recent game that we both really, really enjoy that went up on crowdfunding again recently, Wizards of the Grimoire or Bookie Bookie Pew Pew, right? Great art. Independent production, but a whole bunch of unique art. To the best of my understanding, not AI generated. You know, they commissioned a whole bunch of art. But the card backs are just very visually uninspired. And you have a pet peeve about card backs that say the name of the game. But even on top of that, they're just relatively uninspired. And uh, the different decks barely have any deck back differences. All the pandemic historical variants have had these gorgeous card backs. It is something that I get so much joy out of every time I play them. And I think it's an underappreciated aspect of board game components. So all things being equal, because look, you're going to be spending so much time looking at them. They're there on the board, they're there on the table. You can see them on the backs of people's hands. It's, it's, it's a great area to devote resources and attention to. 
So a, a, a special shout out for that. I really like pandemic games. I'm uh, and as I say, I'm a big fan of the historical variants. My personal preference is for all the variants that don't have a single pool of disease cubes for what it's worth. So for example, in the the in the version about the flood, in the version of uh, Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, in the Cthulhu version, there's not four colors of diseases. There's only a one color of disease. One of the things that I don't like about that, the dynamic of that, is you can reach a tipping point where eventually every turn, you're, you know, you're pulling three infection cards. And so every turn, three more added to the board. Well, you've only got four actions. So if every turn you have to spend at least three to remove them just to remain stable, rather than engaging in a triage versus like, okay, yellow's not a problem, black's a problem. We focus on black. We get the black cubes off the board. So then if the other colors get added, we're kind of okay. I, I vastly prefer that element, and it makes me feel like I'm, I get to actually engage in some prayer prioritization. Anyway, that is Pandemic Iberia, one of the historical variants published in 2016 by Z-Man Games. It is one of my favorites. Had a great time. You know, I got to play Sankore, the pride of Mensa Musa. And this is a, 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 I don't know, it's my first 2024 game. This was a review copy given to us by the publisher. And I think its primary uh, mechanism is worker selection and then you add the workers to your board and they and they they sort of filter through the initial gates they have to match their colors mm-hmm. yep. and so you're sort of populating your player board for the game because because while the game plays these workers sort of work their way up your board and they activate actions and they get more out of the action if it matches the color. As as a devotee of Envelopes of Cash, Walker, allow me to emphasize, these are not workers. These are students. Yes, sir. Yes, they perform labor. And yes, that labor is of tremendous value. And yes, we profit off of them, but we don't pay them. It's so true. <laughs> and uh, so the, the board is randomly populated with students. So you're, you're sometimes limited on which colors you can choose. Yes. And that is the primary area of game variability for what it's worth. And then and then you're populating your board with classrooms, different colored classrooms. So they, the, as the students advance up, you're going to be able to do different actions. And those different colors also are associated on the board with different main actions. You're going to do two on your turn. They must be different. And it's all sorts of different things. I won't go into it. But you're, there's a lot going yeah, on. A lot yes. going on. There's mosques and, and crowns and and roads trade caravans and walls all sorts of crazy things to get points overall i think it was uh it was i very much enjoyed it you're getting books you're trying to get the build up these favors and then you're trying to manipulate how much each of these favors is worth anyway what do you think mark uh, I didn't enjoy it very much. Uh, I'd be I'd be willing to, to to revisit it, of course, because as I say it's it's rather dense, and I can't say to have fully understood the dynamics of much of anything really. But my primary objections is as follows. So one of the reasons why we're interested in Sankore, the Pride of Mansa Musa, was because this is another design by Fabio Lopiano, who's rapidly becoming one of our favorite designers. Or I should say, he has designed some of our favorite games because his output has been inconsistent. You know, he put out Kalamala, we adore Kalamala. He followed up with Ragusa, we did not like Ragusa. He put out... Autobahn, we adore Autobahn. Autobahn is a great medium-heavy Euro game. And then he put out Merv. We're not a big fan of Merv. And now there's Sankore. And Sankore, when compared to the games of his that we very much appreciate, is 
all over the place. One of the reasons why I really like Audubon is because everything comes together and you feel like you're doing something, right? So it's got a sense of place. It's got a sense of historicity. It's got a sense of tangential consequences, both in terms of its setting and in terms of the things that you are doing. Conversely, Sankore doesn't feel thematic remotely, which is fine. Uh, we're actually going to be talking more about that when we talk about Federation. Themeless games can be fine. But everything is just this radically disconnected jumble of, okay, I really need a book. Where can I go get a book? It's like, I can do this, that, or the other thing. It's like, okay, fine, I'll go do that thing. And so consequently, most of it feels very tactical, except for the scoring system, which is very strategic. And the, the, the scoring system I do actually like. It's all about getting prestige tokens, and the value of a prestige token can range between zero, which is to say nothing, all the way to maximally six points, but realistically probably more like three or four. That part I thought was great. And sure enough, it was uh, simultaneously focused and yet not calculational. Focused in the sense of this is the only thing that matters. Not calculational in the sense that I had no idea who was doing well <laughs> before the end of the game. Indeed, none of us did. The winner was a shock to everyone, including the winner. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Again, this is a, this is a pretty heavy game and we played it for the first time. But I very much didn't like how disconnected everything felt, how themeless it felt, and how arbitrary the worker limitations felt. One of the things that I was hoping for, and I don't know if my displeasure is as a function of frustrated expectations or genuine dislike, was I thought this was going to be the kind of thing where you got to build your own worker placement element, right? You get to craft your, get the right students, get the right courses together, and build some kind of, not necessarily engine, but like a worker placement space. In practice, everything just felt so tactical. It's like, okay, I'd really like to be able to run this class. Oh, I don't have any astronomy students. Are there any astronomy students on the board? Nope, none to be have. Okay, well, I guess I go better do something else. Yeah, there's zero repopulation. What's yep. on the board at the beginning of the game is what's going to be there. So yes. if, if there's like two, like you said, astronomy, stu astronomy students, and that's all there's going to be. And it's hopeless to, to try to build towards getting that astronomy student because you're forced to do two different actions on your turn. So if you take an action to liberate an astronomy student, you just have to hope that nobody else takes it. And if they do, you're worse than it's square one. So consequently, uh, there was this combination of the necessity of strategic planning for scoring purposes and the inability to control what was coming into your board that ended up feeling more arbitrary than a zero luck game ought to feel in my estimation. So suffice to say that I, I you know, I'm, I'm willing to try it again. Uh, the setup is no joke. It's a little, Oof. and it's a little all over the place, but, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like it's too scattershot to really bring anything together. Uh, I don't require that every Euro game have a central theme. Like I, The fact that you can't really say it's a worker placement game or an area majority game or whatever, that's not a problem. But it's just every sub-board, there were four different areas of the board, and they just all felt like different mini-games, but not in the fun kind of Space Cadets way. <laughs> More in a sort of all over the place, what am I able to do on my turn? Okay, I'll just do this one tactical thing way. That is Sencore, Pride of Mansa Munza, with Fabio Lupiano and Mandela Fernandez Grandin. I will say, though, that if you're going to make a themeless Euro game, uh, hats off for choosing a setting that is very underrepresented in terms of Euro games. And Ian O'Toole's artwork, I think, really sold the setting in terms of the mosque design, in terms of the caravans, in terms of everything else. I, I really felt like this was a good call, given that they could have made this about, you know, the umpteenth the game about the, the Hanseatic League or what have you. And this was published by Osprey Games, who was nice enough to give us this review copy. We streamed Botoku Restaurant this last Saturday. Restaurant? Yes. Well, it's, pretty, it's written in the Japanese word, but it means restaurant. Oh, okay. 
re- yeah, restaurant is what it is how it's said, but I looked it up. It just means restaurant. Okay. So Potoku Restaurant is the expansion, both designed by Jermaine P. Milan and put out by Devia Games. So uh, Potoku is all about Asian spirits, and of course it has seasons like every other game about Asia. Uh, well, Japanese specifically. Japanese specifically. So you are doing this combination of card placement and dice placement. You have to place the card to unlock the dice, which allows you to play the dice on the board, which activates something else. And then the dice can move across the river, which lets you do yet another thing. It's all about timing, trying to get your dice out to areas before other people can, and then locking down areas because they won't get a certain bonus if their die is not equal to or higher. The the, uh, expansion adds... Uh, 15 new lake treasure cards, which are uh, these sort of bonuses for each area. You move this little Kadama up these tracks and it changes those tracks completely up. Usually it was just a who's higher on the track. Now there's all sorts of different things you can do on these different tracks on the board. Yay, more tracky. More tracks on the tracks. Also has six new yokai cards, which are sort of dual spirits on each card. So a lot of the stones that give you endgame scoring say you have to have certain kinds of, of spirits. Now these cards have two different kinds of spirits and different scoring on the bottom. And more rocks, like I just said. And then the big difference is this giant deck of cards that uh, there's uh, different ways you can get them. And they're just sort of bonuses for when you do another action. It's like when you do this, then you get to play this card and it gives you more stuff. And then there's a big group of red cards that are uh, player interaction, take that cards. And it says right in the rules, if you don't like that, take out all the red cards. And I read some of the red cards and the red cards got taken out immediately. Yeah. When you have a tight Euro like that and you yes. certainly say, oh, when someone takes a, a resource, then then you get that resource instead. Like that kind of thing. No dice. So, yes, they immediately went back in the box and won't be playing with the interactive take that cards what was the last euro we had where there was a big stack of cards and some of them were take that cards yes it was rats of wistar and they looked nightmarishly unfun like steal someone's resource there are games where that's fine and we've got no problem with it in that imagine if you were playing agricola imagine any like just standard euro game whether it's a good euro game or a bad euro game where you can just steal resources from somebody. No! There are specific costs for take, these specific things. Take a read from the player from your left. Yeah. <laughs> and the game breaks. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's, oh, it's a terrible idea. Why are they doing this? I don't know. Like <laughs> I said, but in both games, it clearly states in the rulebook. Yeah. Good point. If you don't like this, take them out. Good point. Good point. And with another neat thing they did with the experience, they just put a whole uh, sheet of stickers in. So you could add stickers to all your player pieces and... Did they include googly eyes? No googly eyes. Oh, that's amazing. I, I had already had, had third parties bought stickers for all my Patoogle stuff. Yes. So, so it was like, oh, that was awfully nice. But <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you can now customize it. Some could be some of the stickers. Some could be well, the other ones. The other good thing about it is that the expansion was multilingual. And so there's a whole, one of the mm. modules is all in French. So if some, if there's a French listener out there that has a copy of Potoku and you want it, just drop me a line. Well, French speaking, let, French us, speaking. let us acknowledge the Quebecois who are not True. French, but French. So you'll get French. the new cards, you'll get the sticker sheet, you'll get uh, a whole bunch of extra sticker sheets that I got from third party. It'll be all sent to you. Just drop me a line. That's very much mighty generous of you, Walker. That is Potoku Restaurant. Potoku actually is a good 
illustration of what I was trying to get at with Sankore, right? Butoku has a whole bunch of different steps to getting certain things done. You know, you unlock the die, you place the die, you have the die cross the river. I don't think any of those elements would be rendered better by having the sort of constraint of supply and timing that Senkore's workers do, right? All of those are under your control, and it's a question of your prioritization and when you want to do it, and whether or not it makes more sense for you to fight other players to get there first. Senkore, more often it felt like, uh, no astronomers here. Okay, better go do something else. At any rate, not to, not to rag on Senkore. No. More on Senkore to follow, no doubt. Walker showed us Kurtz Vor Knapp by Helmut Punke and Tobias Punke, Zockverlag 2020. This is, so it's kind of an dexterity game and it's kind of not, because the way that it works is you have all these wooden planks of various length, and your job is to bridge the gap between different wooden tokens that are circles. And more or less, the challenge is without touching them and without being able to move them or hold them up next to the space, trying to judge whether a given expanse is too long or too short for uh, a given gap. And this is a kind of skill that has been generated for by generations by Warhammer players and by other mi tabletop miniatures war games where you're not allowed to pre-measure. I do not play those games, and one of the reasons is that. Uh, Pre-measurement is, uh, is great. And so despite the fact that I played a lot of tabletop miniatures war games, I don't have a good sense about how long things are. You know, look over there, look at, I don't know, that looks long enough. Nope, it's not long enough. So the early stages of, of the game were dreadfully boring to me. Spectacularly uninteresting. I thought that, yeah, but overall I thought that was the interesting part of the game in, really? in a whole. The, the, like no, the no, no not, the, not the early game. The, okay. The, the transition, right? The fact oh, that sure. I had, when it went from like, Judging distances to a dexterity game, precisely. Right, I thought that was very, very interesting that they got that out of such a such a little low rule set. You right. Mean? Once you have a, a certain set of structures, uh, you are incentivized to uh, put out more pylons, put out more sticks, and to put sticks as high as possible. And then the challenge begins because you have to suddenly worry about dislodging this teetering monstrosity that's been developed because you score more points effectively by placing them higher and higher. That part I enjoyed. Then things started getting fun, especially when you were in position where you had to make room for the stick you wanted to place. And so you're suddenly nudging things with the stick you're placing and hoping you don't nudge them too far. That part was cool. I very much hated the early turns, though. Agreed. So, now, I mean, having better expectation about what the early game looks like and the fact that it is in service of a much better late game, I think I'd be able to approach it with a greater degree of equanimity. But ultimately, there's just a whole bunch of of turns, sometimes in sequence, where the board state just wouldn't allow for more or less any placement. Now, there are rules for that. If everybody fails at placing a given piece, you junk that piece, and then you move on to the next one, which hopefully is of a different length. Because if it's of the same length, that could be two full rounds of play where nothing happens, and that's not great. So the possibility of stalemating, ugh, not ideal, uh, but the late game was cool. It, it actually reminded me of what I hoped Tokyo Highway would be. Tokyo Highway was very pretty, but in terms of the actual gameplay, I wasn't as satisfied. But the later turns of Kurtz Var Knapp were very pleasing. What do you think of that sort of steal a player's turn? So what happens is the table determines what the next piece is to be played. Then whoever turn it is well determines it's 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 designated it, it's 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 not a choice. No, yeah. 
It's the furthest out. You're supposed yeah. to create some sort of spiral, but it would, uh, it would take too long. Yeah. So anyway, there's a distinct order in which the the, the sticks would be taken. And then without touching anything, the player's turn has to say, well, I'm going to try to put it between these two cylinders. And then before he actually gets to try it, someone they, they can say, well, I'm going to steal that because you can you can claim you're going to put it higher. So if you find two cylinders that are higher, you can now steal that player's turn and then I hated it. It changes the actual player order. Yes. Because not only that, so depending on how, where, who steals it and where it is in that thing, you, you could miss your turn. Yeah. So, so in detail, if player A says, I'm going to put it on level two, player B shrugs and says, okay, go ahead. And player C says, I can put it on level three. If player, if player three, then go, did I go from A to C? Yeah, I, I went from three, A to three. three I went to A to three and back again. It's yeah. a common problem. There should be a word for for that, but it's definitely, uh, maybe it's just, you know, Mark being an idiot. Anyway, if player A says, I'll put it on level two, player B says, go ahead, and player C says, I can put it on level three. If player C does that and succeeds, then it's player A's turn again, and player B gets to do nothing. Nope, don't like it. Don't approve. Well, it, it puts pressure on the player, right? Oh, sure, but I... Keep turn order, though, probably, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think one of the things that we've established pretty definitively... On the things that we don't like in this podcast, because we are civilized human beings, despite the fact that we are occasionally stupid, skipping turns is not fun. What if what if it's B's turn, and C steals it, and we say we're going to keep turn ordered? Does that mean C goes again? Well, that's just it. There's no there's no yes. there's no easy fix. No that's fix. the problem. So yeah. re- relatively charming. I-, I think though it's got some serious deficiencies. I would rather play the other mainstays of our stacking preferences. Speaking of which, immediately afterwards we played Animal Upon Animal. I have heard of this game for a long time. Never the actually, classic. Never actually got to play it. Uh, it's usually hard to get. So when I saw a copy, I decided to grab it for upcoming grandchildren. And this is, like Mark said, a classic stacking game, and it lived up to its hype. It was very fun. You need to be the sheep master. (laughs) This is designed by Claus Mittenberger and put out by Haba, and it's all these different array of giant, chunky animal meeples, and you're rolling a die, and you're stacking them on top of this alligator and trying to go higher and higher and balancing, and nice, simple, easy Good quality components. One of the things we talk about in terms of junk art is all, you can get a lot of mileage out of components that were designed to be interesting to stack, despite the fact that you're only going to be stacking on what is basically a 2D plane. You're not allowed to put things at 90 degree angles to each other. You nonetheless find interesting nooks and crannies. Like, I didn't know a monkey and a toucan could fit together that way. Fabulous. It's a classic for a reason. There are a whole bunch of different versions of Animal animal Upon Animal, a whole bunch of different expansions to Animal Upon Animal. I've only tried the OG, to the best of my recollection, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. It is one of Haba's mainstays for an excellent reason, and I'm always happy to return to Animal Upon Animal. We got to try Bloodstones. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. This is Martin Wallace's latest from a company called Wallace Designs. I smell nepotism. Published late last year slash the beginning of this year, pursuant to successful crowdfunding. This is a very, 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 very light troops on a map abstracted things. Let's start with the positives as far as I'm concerned. Walker will be able to elaborate on this, but as far as I'm concerned, the positives consist of these beautiful, chunky Bakelite tiles and these lovely felt bags. And this nice big cloth map. Which yeah, no, no, I was done. You don't know. 
the cloth map has spaces that are not functional. Oh. The, the areas are too small. It's true. And the board wrinkles up at the slightest provocation. It's true. But you, you couldn't just let me finish my nice thought. You immediately a... had to bring me on to the stuff that I don't like well, about Bloodstones. I like the maps. Good for you. And okay, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them, yes. And speaking of the tiles, that is the mainstay of the game. Everything costs tiles. And so you have this great trade-off of how to spend these tiles. First thing you do is you need to spend tiles to take over villages that you have troops in. Then you need to spend tiles to put out new units, spend tiles to move those units. And if you want to get in a fight and you want to increase your score, you're going to have to make sure you have some tiles left over. And this is all from a hand of six tiles every turn. So you have to make these decisions on what to do with those tiles full stop the trade-offs were okay i thought that part was all right it's definitely pretty clean as far as these things go uh, some players had a bit of confusion about the representation and iconography i did I, I thought it was very well done in terms of the building costs versus pips and Initially, I was somewhat concerned about the usability of the tiles as units because there's no representation about what the units do. And there are six asymmetric factions. Fortunately, one problem solves the other because the factions aren't really that asymmetric at all. And all the units are, what's the polite word for boring? Dull. So there's not really much difficulty in remembering what everything does. So the fact that there's no representation on them is fine. So it's very usable in that sense, yes. other than the cloth, aside from the cloth maths, which are not very usable. And internalizing that was no problem. I am having trouble remembering the last time I played such an unsatisfying troops on a map game. It is with difficulty. The combat system was <laughs> unrewarding in in the most egregious way. Yes. And the balance between the player powers was also painful to witness. Yes. The way battle works is you must, as Walker identified, exert tremendous trade-offs from your limited hand of tiles to haul your group of people from one place to another, which is fine, into a fight. And frequently, the fights that we experienced tended to be like, well, I've got a strength of three versus your strength of one, or something along those lines. There were exceptions, of course. Every once in a while, a dragon would show up. Dragons are disposable. Did you know that? You pull the tab, the dragon pops out, and then it immediately drops down dead. Sometimes, uh, in the... In Early days, when the Chaos Horde was busy being a Chaos Horde, there were fights with like 8 to 2 or something like that. But that was that after the first turn or two, that didn't happen. So frequently, it's like 3 to 1. And then what you do is you pull these tiles from the battle bag. And the battle bag would then add to that some number hovering between 8 and like 14. So what's the point of trying to drag your carcass halfway across the map and trying to get better when the, the, the random influx of, of battle tiles will be far more determinative than the, the great effort you exerted to bring them over? I, I, I was not impressed. Martin Wallace is normally associated with, in my mind, a series of design excesses. Over-chromed things, definitely not the problem with Bloodstones. I would have been happy with more faction asymmetry than there was, so I was I was rather surprised to see how under-chromed everything was. But one of the things that he's typically associated with, in a number of his multiplayer conflict games, like Mythotopia, A Handful of Stars, he, run, he runs smack into Wildlands as well, as you pointed out. He runs smack into some of the most obvious multiplayer conflict problems imaginable, which is really quite shocking for a designer of his pedigree. And Bloodstones, honestly... It doesn't even run into those problems because it, it runs into a whole bunch of other ones. Like one example, 
so much of what drives Bloodstone is like janky and abstract because of how light it is. It's almost like Martin Wallace doesn't know how to design very, very light games. Or at least his, his track record with very light games is very spotty. The way you build villages. Villages are your infrastructure. They're the bases you have to protect. They're the way you get victory points in some context. You can chain them infinitely in a given turn. So I'm, I'm in a territory. I'm going to build adjacent. I, you get to build adjacent to where you are. I don't even need to have any units there. And then I can build another village adjacent to that. And then another village adjacent to that. There are good gameplay reasons for why it should be that way. And good gameplay reasons for why you wouldn't chain infinitely. But the mere fact that you can is so strange and counterintuitive given the type of game that it's trying to posit itself to be. And we kept running into these weird counterexamples. Like that you can retreat into a battle. That's absurd. But it has to work that way for Bloodstones. So what we have is something that's trying to sort of kind of be a Troops on a Map game, but ends up feeling like more or less nothing. Just this bizarre, whack-a-mole, unsatisfying, random and arbitrary, counterintuitive thing with very, very nice tiles. Very nice tiles. Yeah. I, I do want to give it another try. I want to try with a different player count. We play with five. We did. So I'm wondering if it'll play slightly differently with less. Well, with, with fewer than five, the downtime would be less onerous. That's for sure. I'm going to... Uh, there's a whole solo mode where they set up all the scenarios and you go through these story modes. I'm going to try streaming that every week to show people what the, the sort of campaign system is like. And I'm interested to see if it just plays differently in different groups. Well, normally it's worth emphasizing that in conflict games, one of the degeneracies that our group is prone to is the sort of end of the world problem. We build up military forces the entire game, and in the last round there's an orgy of violence, which is one of the reasons why we tend to appreciate from a design perspective those troops on a map games that sufficiently incentivize combat and make it fluid enough where you don't have those problems. The two classic examples in terms of my preferences are Kemet and Senji. There's more going on to it than just troops on a map in Senji's case, but whatever, you take my point. And Bloodstones didn't have that problem. We were fighting every turn, because indeed, one of the key ways you get points is by starting fights. But midway through the game, we started looking at the map, or at least I started looking at the map. It's like, okay, well, that that's a good target to go after. That's a good target to go after. I can't get to any of them. All right, let's turtle. So instead of turtling because of a, 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 a natural preference or predilection, it was because I had nothing else to do, which is not great. That could be another reason why you can chain villages, because you can build where your villages are. So maybe you can shoot villages out in a direction and then build there if no one takes them over. Uh, but you build, yeah, but you build yeah. villages at the end of your turn you and then you build at the start of the turn. So that's asking for trouble. It is. I agree. <laughs> So I guess we uh, we are going to paratroop into enemy territory through strategic use of urbanization. That being said, they can't capture them until the beginning of their next turn. So you could build in, but then they're going to already be there anyway. Let's not get in, <laughs> let's not get into the. Which would just be a weird other set of degenerates. Yes, exactly. It's like, ah, an undefended village. I will now devote resources to go and try to capture the end of the village. Oh, they just paratrooped in five troops there. Okay. Bloodstones. Bloodstones. I'm glad. I'm glad you see promise. I could easily believe that the solo offers slightly more appeal. I just found it desperately unsatisfying in so many different ways. Bloodstones. Bloodstones. Those are the games we played last week. Now a brief break while we pay some bills. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Shipyard, second edition, is now in stores. This is a Vladimir Suchi game. This one is put out by Delicious Games, the, the, the publisher that's been putting out a lot of his games lately. So if you like Shipyard, the new edition is out. If you haven't been able to get a copy of it, it is Rondelli. Oh yeah, so many rondels. <laughs> I'd be interested to give it a try. I, I vaguely enjoyed the first Shipyard for a bit. Uh, and there are some kind of cool thematic flourishes. I'd be interested to see if it has been improved over the years. But we... The thing is, the thing with Vladimir Suki, he's kind of a hobby unto himself. He just... <laughs> every year he's got at uh, least one or two releases, often more. And we still haven't finished uh, playing Evacuation uh, to, to figure that one out yet. So, let alone going back to Pulsar. I haven't Pulsared in a while. Keep being forced to play all the new Sookies, and I don't get go back to the Sookie that I actually really like. So Cosmos puts out all the crew, that sort of trick-taking, very interesting trick-taking games. Not the same designers, but same publisher. They're putting out a game called In the Gang, Mark. This is going to be a, a cooperative version of Texas Hold'em. Huh. So apparently you're going to look at your cards and you're just going to sort of put out uh, chips on how good your cards are at that moment. And then more cards get added and then you manipulate the chip somehow. All the rules aren't out. I think it's going to be great. I'm looking forward <laughs> to trying it. Texas Hold'em is a game I enjoy. And I, cooperative Texas Hold'em, that could just be an interesting twist. Poker, fundamental poker mechanics have been leveraged in a lot of different games. And for, to my mind, never more satisfyingly than in Shot and Totten slash Battle Line. In most other cases, I've, I, I, I don't find it works very well. Remember the combat system in Western Legends? Yeah, no. My, <laughs> yeah. my mind's blocked it out. <laughs> Fair enough. Can't blame you. Kabuto Sumo is a very, very charming little game. We uh, is one of the few games where we have two copies in the uh, collective swag collection, one for me and one for Walker. I'm never giving mine up, that's for sure. And there's the expand-alone Sakura Slam on Kickstarter right now. So if you want to get into Kabuto Sumo, it is a very, very charming push game where you have these wooden discs and you're trying to shove your opponent out of the ring and or other pieces, and it is themed around insect pro wrestling, which is one of those very contemporary controversial themes. But, you know, these are issues that we have to grapple with in, in today's culture. If you want to bling out your own copy of Kabuto Sumo, this new Kickstarter comes with Lazy Susan Rings. Yes. So I, spin, spin, spin. I don't know. I, I'm definitely getting all the new stuff from Kabuto Sumo Sakura Slam. I do not know if I'm going to get the wooden rings. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence, as it were. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game this week, which is Federation. Federation was designed by Dimitri Perrier and Mathieu Verdier, published by Explorate in, well, depends on who you ask. In North America, it mostly hit our shores in 2023, so we included it in 2023 in our end-of-the-year summary. Uh, Dimitri Perrier has designed a whole bunch of stuff not with Mathieu Verdier in the past, such as Big Monster and Ludum and the Specialists. We have not played any of these. Mathieu Verdier has designed a whole bunch of stuff not with Dimitri Perrier, such as Demeter Varuna in the Footsteps of Darwin. Also things that we have not played. 
Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of the two to four player game Federation? In Federation, on your turn, you want to do it all, Mark. You want to put out your weakest win. Your weakest worker, you wanted to do all the actions. You want to win all <laughs> the rows of majority in the Senate. You wanted to put out markers on all your advanced actions. You wanted to advance all the major projects, giving you all the bonus actions. But you can't because Billy just took the space he wanted and now your game is ruined. Why do we play with Billy? I don't know. He's a jerk. Yeah. So every turn, two random planets are going to score. Plus, like I just said, the three rows of the Senate have a majority contest. Later on in the game, there are five bonus actions on your player board, four techs on the green planet, five of the level three representatives that you can acquire also dish out a whack of points. And then at the end of the game, you get points for medals, remaining resources, and quote unquote funded major projects. <laughs> Citation needed. Yes. So Federation for me is kind of uh, a tale of two cities. It's, you know, the best of times and the worst of times. It does a really, really good job with its fundamental engine, and I'm less pleased with what they did with it. This is a criticism that I frequently have of Euros where the fundamental action selection and or the dynamics of the, the core of the game is really solidly done and interesting. But the stuff around it, how you score points, the overall things that you're doing with those selections, I'm less keen on. So which of those two would you like to talk about first? Well, I'll just go over it. So what you do, so what Mark is talking about, because on your turn, you're placing an ambassador token. You have four of them and they have, there's a two, a three and two ones. And you're placing it out on this three by three, two, three by three grids of the Senate for multiple reasons, because they have all the actions you want to take. And like I said, you want to win at the end of the round, each row will be uh, area, whoever has the highest number in that row will get points and you want, might want to unlock faction, uh, sorry, unlock bonus actions. And then you get to decide whether or not you want to use an assistant die or an alteration token. So there's lots of decisions. Every time you go to place that worker, you want to know what, what, uh, strength of the token you want to use. Do you want to sort of big league right off the start to sort of lock down that row or even lock down that side of the Senate? Because uh, it'll deter, like someone, if you throw your three out right at the beginning, people might tend to just give up. Well, obviously, the right-hand side of the set is going to win, so therefore, the green plans are going to score. So all of these decisions are, are very interesting, very front-loaded, but still great. Yes. So the worker placement is tense because every round, there's going to be new scoring conditions that you're vying for. And so if in round one, you know that the yellow planet and the green planet might potentially score, those spaces are going to disappear sooner than the other ones. You also care about which side to place your worker for a variety of relatively uh, abstract abstruse reasons. You care about which row you're going to be competing for area majority because that's also going to be points. And on top of that, there's just what actions you need to be doing broadly. You have to take care of standard economy things like having enough resources to buy the things you want to buy and worry about all those other upkeep considerations because there's minor upkeep, but it's pressing. And that part is what I really, really like about Federation. It makes sure that there's lots of player interaction because the competition over those things is, is, is fierce. Perhaps exaggeratedly fierce based on one of my other concerns, but it's very compelling in terms of deciding how to do things. And unlike my criticism of some of the worker placement games, it's definitely not the case that they first designed an economy and then said, well, how are we going to distribute these? Is it going to be drafting? Is it going to be work, uh, worker placement? 
it can just be a sort of default way of, of distributing things. The core of the action selection in Federation is extraordinarily well done. And as, as you say, I find it very, very tense and I'm pulled in a lot of different directions all the time. Usually by the end of the round, even then, I'm debating where I need to send my worker. Unlike a lot of other worker placement games where, you know, your last worker can often be like, okay, well, I guess I'll take these scraps and those other scraps. Because there are all these multi very uh, multiple consequences in terms of what we'll score, it remains tense until the end of the round. Yeah, and I always find myself coming up with, you know, three different plans. Because I always like to have my turns done quickly. So, and almost every time plan A is taken. <laughs> Someone's taking your spot. So you always have to have two or three plans going because, the, like you said, every spot is heavily contested. Right. And again, because there are three or four different things that that spot represents. Yes. In a very, very tightly integrated, smooth way. It's not like there are these strange corner case consequences like, oh, because I placed there, it had this weird dovetail effect. No, no, no. It's like, well, I placed there because I really want to compete for the row scoring, or I placed there because I really need to fund this project, or I'm going there because I really need the actual worker space itself. It's the last bonus action that I haven't got yet. Precisely. so many things. Precisely. And I really wish that this system had been married to a slightly more interesting set of things to do, because you'll notice we haven't really talked about the theme of Federation yet. This is no accident. It is very themeless. In theory, it's, it's again, it, it, there are all these games historically themed or science fiction themes or fantasy themed that gesture towards politics that don't actually manifest. The theme of Federation is you're a whole bunch of young races in science fiction settings and you're competing to join the big Federation of planets or whatever and only the most glorious, right, blah, 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 blah. And you have to, it's called a Senate. It's just a matrix of worker placement spaces. And in theory, what you're doing is you're sending envoys to different, they're just tracks. You're just going up different tracks. That, that's what the worker placement areas by and large do. You're going up different tracks. Now, as far as the different tracks are concerned, they're not especially tracky. It's not like they have a weird set of different conditions and costs and strange scoring conditions. They're mostly consistent, mostly kind of. There are some exceptions. I'm not going to rag on it too hard for being exceptionally tracky because the biggest, most important track is arguably the one on your player board, and that's your authority. And that's very clear. It's not... Accreditation. Accreditation, yes. And consequently, the, the, the fact that there's just all these disparate little separate planetary things to go do is just more my sense of the actual economy of Federation the thing that the cool worker placement action is driving is a borderline point salad mishmash of a variety of different things. Agreed. And on top of that, there's uh, the there's the the pink planet, Mark. That's the one that I, I the pink planet bothers me a little bit. It to does. be frank, that's why I'm bringing it up. Okay, what, what bothers just, you about just, the pink it planet? It just really bogs the game down because everything, like yes. you said, every every other sort of mechanism in the game is straightforward. Blue yeah. planet, move forward. Green, you know, pay the resources, get the tech. Yellow planet do a trade. Orange planet go forward. Pink, you have uh, was it five by f- five by five by three? Five by three. So Fifteen. The they're called erudites. Yes, which is a very strange noun. Normally, I hear it used as an adjective, like how your mom talks about how we're not erudite. But this is a noun to refer to various people. Whatever they're tiles. You get these tiles. So there's 15 visible tiles, and as soon as it take, takes one, there's a new one will appear, and it's totally different. Yep. So you And you have no idea what all these tiles do. They all have unique abilities, so you're constantly in the book, and if maybe you combo to pink 
action and you weren't prepared. So now yep. you're like looking through all these, trying to decide what to take. And I really don't like how the tier three erudites can be in some games by far, not by a small margin, by far the single biggest source of points for some people. It's not necessarily unbalanced. You have to work towards it because they queue off of another track. So if you max up another one track and then you race up the erudites of a certain color, you can then drown in points. It just feels a little unsatisfying when you compare it to, say, the technologies that score you lots of points, which are very expensive and which require you to race up two separate tracks, and frequently the benefit you get there is uh, a little little less. So it's a little jarring, it's a little contrary to expectations, and it's easy to miss. So it's a pitfall very easy for new players to fall into. Yeah, but on top of that, the technology uh, victory point things, other people can follow in. They'll get less, but at least it'll still be there. That's true. Whereas the... The, the, the erudites, once erudites are gone, are, they're gone. Are gone. Yeah, One yeah. person gets it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that that part strikes me as less satisfying. It is the uh, most obtuse, most unanticipated, and difficult to internalize thing, and it can be worth the most points. So, I mean, all told, I, I'd be happier if it, were, if it worked elsewhere. It's also the case that the... Um, this is a very, very minor quibble. The way medallion scoring works in pink is also very different from all the other planets. The other planets, how you get there is, is usually straightforward. Green and yellow both have this notion of higher levels being worth more. Uh, every time we play, usually someone asks about pink. It's like, how do you get the pink medallion again? Is it one per? It's like, yeah, it's just one per or flat. Anyway, very minor quibble. But again, it, it's just not as clean as, as the other things, and but not in an interesting way. Like, if, if there were these... Interesting elements that dovetailed with the interesting work placement. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be complaining, but it's just it's it's a little bit of a, of a sore thumb sticking out. So we sort of touched on accreditation or prestige, like we said, and it's the sidetrack on your board. It slowly creeps up, or sometimes very quickly creeps up. Depends on yeah. And it unlocks what bonus actions you can do, and it also sets the the points you're going to get for winning the rows in the Senate. It also will unlock some medallions like we just talked about. It'll also unlock uh, bumping bonus points and like a final sort of action you get to do if you get to the very top. And because it interacts very directly with the cool worker placement competition, I am the most fond of that as a track, right? Because the number of points you're going to win for having the most influence in a row is a function of that track. So... You can ignore it at your peril, uh, but it is more valuable to people who are competing for that source of points. Ultimately, again, uh, one of my criticisms of Federation is that it feels very point salady because it's it's relative small ball. Like if you max out this track and you win a row, that's five points, which is peanuts. But er- almost everything is peanuts, except for a very, very small number of things you do over the course of Federation that might be worth double digits. Mostly we're talking about three here, four there, five there, eight here. And they just accrete. Uh, I would be happier if the focusing, if the score uh, scoring were a little more focused. Agreed. And the higher you are on this prestige track is a payment you have to make at the end of every round. You have to pay in crystals, so you have to just make sure that you have those ready to pay. What uh, What do you think about the economy of Federation? I find it very interesting. Like the income that you get at the end or the... the Just the way resources are handled broadly. I like it. I like the fact that there's some plants where you just get them and then one, then there's the trade plant that lets you just produce those, you know, like work those, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's basic. 
which I like. Right? It is. I, I wouldn't full, say basic. I would say minimalist. Minimalist. Right. Yeah. It's not the kind of euro where it's like, okay, I'm getting five wood in, I'm getting two reed, I'm getting three of this other, and then spend. These. You're talking about costs where a very very expensive thing will cost like four resources. And consequently, there's a, a focus to it. You can spend some turns not really caring about resources at all and just focusing on other stuff to do. And by resources, I just mean the gems. I mean, yeah. technically speaking, they're all resources and you'll be accumulating lots of stuff. But in terms of just the blunt economy of Federation, you don't have to spend very much attention. It, it, it's not a calculational, it's not a, an accounting style game. And that I appreciate. Yeah, and that very minorly dovetails into the ambassadors you put as well. If you put them on a certain side, you will get resources, you'll get gems. And so that also like sort of sometimes plays into how you're going to play them and where you're going to play them. Absolutely. Then we have, let's talk about the major projects. I think that's where we are now. Yes. Let's talk about the major projects. So when you play out an ambassador, you either put it for the area majority side, which is going to score that row, or you flip it over and whatever action you put it on it will unlock that bonus action on your player board. And not only that, at the end of the round, it's going to move up the major project in that column. And then if that major project makes it all the way to the end at the end of the game, then everyone will score that major project. And it's going to be uh, all of the all of the tracks of the planets, whoever, you know, how high you got on that. So focusing on that on purpose doesn't seem logical because everyone will score it. And not only that, the board is designed in a way that the actions underneath that major project will not advance you on that track. Yes. Ultimately, we've in, across the games we've played, the frequency of major project funding goes up the more experienced the players are. But honestly, it gets so situational. As you say, in order for it to make sense to fund a major project, you need to be able to have a lead in a certain area of, of the game, maintain that lead, and simultaneously while maintaining that lead, engage in a series of actions, which may or may not be optimal for other reasons, to fund the scoring of that criterion. But in terms of funding that criterion, you're not advancing that criterion. So... All these plates need to be in the air, spinning in the right way for it to make any kind of sense. It's possible, but it's one of those things where the frequency of its mention in terms of various effects across the board and in terms of the amount of real estate that it occupies on the game board is way outsized compared to how realistic, plausible, and useful it is. And so again, it's another area where it just seems like a little bit... It's already the case that and some it's already the case that it makes sense to place your ambassador on the other side for the other exogenous reasons this this weird aspect and then there's the joint major project anyway the major projects are weird they don't make a whole lot of sense i wish that effort had been done to make the funding work a little bit differently for those purposes yeah and we're not saying you don't get a lot of points we're i'm we're just i think i'm just saying that given the amount the of effort i don't think you that's do. what i'm saying it's not rewarding <laughs> yeah. doing it 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 uh everyone will get the points and it just doesn't seem interesting yeah while you're busy pumping up the major project i might say oh okay well blue's blue's gonna score a lot of points oh, okay i'll just catch up on blue all right yeah. <laughs> which is more or less the same way that each end of round scoring works you know we we compete i try to make yellow score you try to make blue score you end up winning blue's gonna score it's like oh okay well i better catch up in blue there at least you know it's a two to six ish point margin realistically speaking but that happens every round 
And that just enters the sea of, of, of the, the, the worker placement considerations and the general pointsality feeling. And that part's okay. But trying to roll it into some sort of, it, it just, it's, it ends up feeling like much ado about nothing. And even though I've now internalized that it's much ado about nothing, it still bothers me. It seems like a bit of a rough edge. It's its own phase at the end of the round. It's its own section of the board. There are a whole bunch of worker placement spaces that interact with it. And it just doesn't seem to have any payoff. Well, on top of that, there's a centralized major project, which just doubles down on all of that. Yeah. Super weird. Oh, moving on. So the iconography on the whole board and sort of just the layout and the components, are, I think, are all very good. I agree. It's easy to pick up the game. It's easy to set the game. It's except a, for the erudites, yes. It does. Yes, except for the erudites. It does have a little, you know, egregious setup, but once you know, then it, it goes very quickly yes. with multiple hands. Uh, the player aids are, are, once again, same thing. Once you know the player aid, then they're very useful as well. And it has very interesting three-player, which I think the two-player works the same, but we played it mostly with the three-player sort of. Right. You it had three and you, had to have a, you always had to have a dummy player. Yes. Which and, just throws votes in semi-random areas. Yeah, which was, you know, it was it was easy to manipulate. 100%. Right? And it and made sure that everything remained tight. My key uh, other minor problem, I mean, make no mistake, I really enjoy Federation. As I say, I'm a sucker for a good action selection element. I really like area majority. The fact that it all feeds into a kind of point salad thing I'm willing to forgive. And because of how tense and, and uh, the quality of the decision making that the worker placement entails. The other objection I have uh, to Federation, though, and this is not uncommon uh, amongst heroes, is uh, every play feels more or less the same. In round one, you might be fighting over yellow and blue. In round two, you might be fighting over green and pink. And, you know, the order of that matters. It absolutely matters for your decision. When I say that every play feels more or less the same, I don't mean it's the kind of Euro where you'd be like, I have my first 15 turns planned out. Absolutely not. But in terms of the overall thrust or arc of the game, I feel one feels more or less like the other. There's a randomized setup for the techs. That doesn't really lead the whole bunch. Like, again... Uh, a tech one game could score off of orange and blue, and then the next game it'll score off of your assistant in pink. Like, okay, whatever. It's <laughs> At the end of the day, it feels more or less the same. And so a little bit of variability in setup, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. Uh, Might have been a little bit more helpful. But ultimately, as I say, you go the... Why I like Federation is the core action selection, not what, not what was done with it. Happy to play again, would suggest it in some contexts. Very, very well done. But I think, to a certain extent, this might be something akin to a first draft. It's definitely more polished than a lot of first drafts. It's just if, they're, if they could take some of these ideas, that same tension and competition, and marry it to a more interesting economic model, or more broadly speaking, model of stuff to compete over, I think that you have a very, very top-class Euro. But as it is, I'm hap- very, very happy to play Federation. Yeah, that's between next release and or if they put an expansion that has some like overlays that change up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 And I think this would become a very good game. Yeah. I think you're right. Actually, it wouldn't even necessarily need another edition or another game using the same mechanisms. I think an expansion could resolve it. Just like put this board over blue, blue works differently now or something. I don't know. Yeah. Good point. It's on board game arena right now. So if you want to try it out, it's in the secret area of board game arena. It'll soon be on Board Game Arena. <laughs> so when it comes out on Board Game Arena, you can give it a try. The implementation so far works very well, and so it should be out in full release soon. That is Federation by Dimitri Perrier and Mathieu Verdier, published by Explorate, which is their own publishing imprint. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. 
You can find all our contact information, as well as a whole bunch of information on SoWrongGames.com. This episode is a multiple five, and so we will acknowledge the existence of our Patreon. We're very, very proud of our Patreon-exclusive content, and we are also very, very grateful to the support of our listeners who have decided to support free media on Patreon, patreon.com slash swag. Mark puts in a lot of work on all the extra content. He does a, a Spirit Island show. He does a bloat show. He does, uh, we do a, a Pledge of Indifference, which is, we talk about a whole bunch of crowdfunding stuff. Uh, we have unedited episodes. We try to do as much as we can for our Patreon listeners. And thank you so much for for helping us out every month. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Please do take care. Peace. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.